Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to begin today by inviting you to turn in your Bibles uh, with me to our text for today. Um, Our text is found in the Gospel of John, the third chapter. And we're going to read the first 16 verses of the third chapter in its entirety. So follow along, uh, if you will. There we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born in the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been together for a while, and most of you know that the story of my adult life, almost in its entirety, is affixed to Connie. Many of you know, I know it surprises you, but yeah, it's true. Many of you know that we met on my first day on campus at Gardner-Webb University, and from the instant I saw her, I never dated another girl, not even my girlfriend at the time. (laughs) That did not go well, as you might imagine. Well, some of you know that I'm also a scientist. It's, It's true. While at Gardner-Webb, I earned an undergraduate degree in biology, a Bachelor of Science, and I'm, I'm proud of that. 
I don't think, though, that any of you know why I decided to go that route, while, uh, why I decided to pursue that particular educational path. You see, as it turns out, Connie was a chemistry major. <laughs> and as such, all of her classes were in the Withrow Science Building on the Gardner-Webb campus. Now, I intended to pursue her relentlessly, but pull up short of just outright stalking. So I did not become a chemistry major, but all of the biology classes were also held in the Withrow Science Building on the campus of Gardner-Webb, so I became a biology major. Oh, I did trips across campus and pick up a minor in religious studies while I was there, but most of my time was intentionally spent in close proximity to Connie. Now, I do not mean to suggest that as a way of thinking through a sound strategy for choosing an educational path. I don't claim that that's a smart way to go about it, but I got to say, it worked out all right for me. I mean, that day I first met Connie was over 35 years ago, and well, here we are. And not for nothing, my study of, of the natural sciences in parallel with my study of religion served to open my eyes to the beauty and the majesty and the enormity and the complexity of both the study of life and what it takes to sustain it, things like water and food and air and light, while at the same time studying the living water and the light of the world, well, I'm grateful for that experience. What I failed to take into account, however, when choosing biology as my major was the amount of time that would be required with my eye peering into one of these, into one of these microscopes, both as a student in my own classes and later as a lab assistant, it seemed that my right eye was semi-permanently attached to lenses like this one, doing the best that I could do to bring things into focus. I would change the magnification. I would increase or decrease the distance between the optics, all in an effort to bring the thing at which I was looking into focus, to be able to see it more clearly. What I found, however, was that regardless of the adjustments that I made on the microscope, I could not see it clearly. I could not see anything clearly if my eyes were tired. The only thing I could do in that case when my eyes were tired and the thing I encouraged my students to do when they were struggling to bring things into focus, when their eyes, eyes were tired, was to just, just look away for a minute, to just look away for a moment, to, to blink, maybe rub their eyes, to let their eyes readjust, and then to take another look, to focus anew, 
Now, nearly every time I did that, I was able to see things that I had been unable to see before, or at least see things more clearly. Now, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Vision 2020, and we have been challenged to, to, during this series and for this year, bring our faith into sharper focus, to focus on faith, to focus on our faith. And I think that's a noble and worthy pursuit. But I'm here to suggest that we can't do that well. We cannot do that productively with tired eyes. Today, I'd like to suggest that in service of our pursuit of Vision 2020, focusing on our faith in this new year and and in this new decade, that we might need to to just look away for a minute. Just, Just take a break for a second. Just look away for a hot minute and allow our eyes to to readjust, then to look again. I'd also like to propose this morning that it isn't as easy as it sounds. It takes courage. It takes courage because when we begin to see things we haven't seen before, or when we rediscover things and bring them into sharper focus, it upsets our apple carts. And we do not like it when our apple carts are upset. In fact, we spend a great deal of time and effort stacking our apples and making sure they stay stacked. In fact, we tend to defend the stackedness of our apple carts at all costs. That's a very human thing for us to do. It takes courage to look at things anew with rested, readjusted eyes. But that's what Nicodemus did. The text we read is familiar to us, or at least it's familiar to many of us. When we read it, we usually gravitate toward some specific things. We, we, we like to think about and kick around why Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. Maybe it was because he was afraid of being seen with Jesus because of what others might think and how they might react. Maybe it was because he felt like it was going to be a long conversation and he just needed a longer block of time. Or, or maybe he was just busy that day, or maybe Jesus was. And they just didn't find the time to be together until it became night. We also like to gravitate toward the born-again language. The teaching that we must be born again, but a different kind of birth, born of the Spirit. And of course we do. Of course we do. It's a, it's a central tenet of our expression of Christianity. And we love the central truth of John 3.16. Of course we do. It is the epicenter of our faith. The thing from which everything else radiates. But let's part just for a second for today and the first verse in part way through the second. The text says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus. A learned man steeped in his own belief and understanding of God, esteemed, confident in what he believed to be true, based on what he had been taught, And in light of that, what he had himself experienced, 
a member of the Jewish ruling council against whom Jesus himself was railing, by the way. And he had something in his crawl. He had a sense that that there may be something more, something bigger, or maybe just a human curiosity. Nonetheless, he mustered up the courage to readjust, to rethink, to re-examine, to reconsider, to entertain a notion. And he went to Jesus. And of course, he got taken to the proverbial woodshed, right? He got, he got schooled by Jesus, and I don't think I'm proud of the fact that I take a little bit of delight in that. But I do. He got, he got schooled by Jesus. Essentially, Jesus told Nicodemus that the entire enterprise, the workings of God, the redemptive purpose of God was much, much bigger and that his capacity to understand was limited, was too myopic. He needed to readjust his eyes. He needed to see better. Well, this morning, what if we considered the same notion? Take a look at this graphic. Now, at first glance and on the surface, we get it right? It suggests that God is much, much bigger than we know or think we know about God based on our own experience. It's the same God, of course, the bigger God and the God of our own experience. It's, it's the same God. We wouldn't argue with that. This concept is not challenging to us at all. In fact, we would ready, readily proclaim it to be true, that there is a God who exists and works outside of our own experience, unseen by us. A small example may be what's going on in the lives of our students in Huntsville, Alabama. It's very real what's happening there. It's very real what's being awakened there, but, but we're not experiencing it. We're not, a, we're not a part of it this morning. It's unseen to us. There's a God that is much, much bigger than our own human experience. It's not the concept that challenges. The concept doesn't challenge us, but it's the day-to-day, feet-on-the-ground execution or living into that concept that really is a challenge. We quite naturally, when talking about faith, talk about our Faith, my faith, your faith. We talk about what we know or think we know about God based on our own experience, on how things played out for us, how we've interpreted those things, how it's played out for us, how we've packaged that up and put it in a statement of sure, of course we do. We've we've packaged it up, we've put it into a statement or a testimony, of course we do. And we should. And we also talk about God beyond our personal experience, but if we're honest, it's a little tough to, it's a little tough to articulate this, but if we're honest, we often talk about that God categorically. And it's usually when something really good has happened to us. The God beyond our personal experience, that which we have in us and we can identify and see right now, the God beyond our personal experience often becomes the category into which we just simply shove the inexplicable on our way to moving on to talk about ourselves some more. 
we tend to just pass by that God where we just shove the inexplicable. We say, it's a God thing. Okay. But think about how that story gets told by us most often. I did this. I did this. I needed this. I wanted this. I wanted this. I wanted this. And this. This happened. It's a God thing. And then I, I, I. We just move right on past the, the God thing. It's a little bit of a silly example. We talk about it in all kinds of ways. We, we're, it's easy for us to say, his ways are not our ways. God's in control. It's all in God's timing, God's will. And oh, how much we love the posters of the footprints in the sand. But all those things have a tendency to become too much of a casual glancing nod. There's a God that is not attached to our own personal human narrative. <laughs> and that God is enormous. That God is big. So what this morning, if in an effort to see things anew or more clearly, we decided to just readjust a bit and focus our attention on the God beyond our own personal experience. I don't mean exclusively, I mean also. I don't mean rather than, I mean but also the God that is beyond our own personal experience. I mean, what if we really did that? What if the God beyond our own personal experience, the God on the edges of the graphic we saw a moment ago, unattached to our personal stories, what if that God was the object of our adoration, not in light of what God has done for us, but just because God? What if that God is the object of our adoration, the, the, uh, the inspirer of our awe? What if that's the object of our worship? What might happen if we took ourselves completely out of the picture? Well, for starters, we might rediscover that it's actually true. That God is much, much bigger than our own personal stories. I'm not suggesting our personal stories and our testimony is unimportant. Those things are important. But God is much, much bigger than our own personal stories. I mean, if we have the courage to readjust to embrace, to internalize, to adore, to be humbled by, to be in awe of the God outside the boundaries of our own experience, the one we can't package up. We may come to discover that the wisdom that we read about in Proverbs 3, to lean not on our own understanding, but into all our ways to acknowledge him, might not only just be a good idea, a wise idea, but an absolute necessity because God's bigger than our understanding. And along that path, with that readjustment, along that trajectory, we might also rediscover faith, faith itself. What it means to be a person of faith, not what it means to be a believer, that's another thing. But what it means to be a person of faith. And our faith may become exponentially bigger. After all, what is faith if not being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see as we read in Hebrews. 
It also likely leads to the realization that this is also true. We really don't know as much about God as we think we do. Or to put it less scarcely and more positively, there's way more to God than we know or than we have experienced. This was brought in sharper focus to me recently, oddly enough, in visiting two grocery stores. I shop regularly at the Kroger in Brookhaven. And I do it a lot. Now, I want to tell you, I'm going to brag a little bit. I'm good at it. I can do it blindfolded. I can hit the parking lot, grab the car, you know, use the cleaning wipes so as not to catch anything. And I can go in that store, and I know where everything is that I'm there after. I can do it blindfolded. I know where it all is. I'm not really aware of what else is on the shelf, but that doesn't matter. I know where what I am going after is, and I can navigate that Kroger like nobody's business. Yeah, I'm good at it. Well, Connie wanted to try a recipe uh, recently that called for um, um, a cod filet, a little, little cod filet, and it, we didn't have it at Kroger, and we had wanted to do it anyway. And so we went to a different grocery store. We went to the Buford Farmer's Market. You ever been there? I walked in the door. Nobody in there looked like me. And I immediately knew I was not in Kansas anymore. And the aisles were filled but all the products and the, and the descriptions of the products and the names of the products were written in different languages. I had no earthly idea what was on those shelves. I imagine they probably paralleled something that I did know about, but you couldn't prove it by me. I couldn't even read it. And yet there were people there just grabbing things off the step because it's just quite normal to them. And I went back to the fish market. Now look, I know I was in the fish market and I'm willing to accept that everything I saw there was indeed a fish. <laughs> but you couldn't prove it by me. I've never seen such creatures. The thing that really got me was in the, was in, was in the produce section, though. Look, I've had to cut down a few trees more germane to this story, I've had to dig up a few stumps. And I know what a taproot looks like and a big root system looks like when you've dug it up and you've cut it up and it's covered in that North Carolina red clay and you've got it stacked up over there. And I saw a stack that looked just like that in the produce section of the Buford <laughs> Farmer's Market. And I thought to myself, what in the world are they doing with a bunch of cut up roots on the table? And I looked at the sign and I kid you not, it was a yam. Yams are perfectly round and come in a can. That's a root. <laughs> I realized I didn't know anything. I'm pretty hot stuff at Kroger, but really in the broad scheme of things, there's a lot that I don't know. Might that also be true when we consider the God on the edges? 
that we don't know so much. Or at least we don't know as much as we think we do about this God. Might our eyes need readjusting? Might they be tired? But it takes courage to do that, I'm here to tell you. It takes courage because it upsets our apple carts. When we begin to see the big, big God, the God on the edges, and, and, and just have the discipline to let that be the object of our worship for a little while. It upsets our apple carts. Next, if we muster the courage to readjust our tired eyes, to focus our attention on the God beyond our own personal experience, we are likely to discover a hard truth. The unfolding story of God's redemptive, saving work in the world is God's story, not yours, not mine. It includes you, but not only you. It's about you, but not just you. Not completely you or me. In fact, to put a sharper point on it, we are not even the central figure in our own personal faith stories and experiences. Not only are we not the hero, and that's okay. We're cool with not being the hero because we're in church and we know the answer to every question asked in church is Jesus or God, right? Or Moses. Or Abraham. You got a pretty good shot if you use one of those. We're okay with not being the hero of the story. We're cool with that. But we're not even the central character we might discover. It is God that is doing a work in you. It is God who is perfecting you. It is God who has saved, is saving, and will save you. It is God who is redeeming all of creation unto God's self. Any way, by the way, God chooses to do so. That is the unfolding story of God. It is by grace, the grace of God, that we are saved. Then everything else follows that. God's the star. Okay, we get that. That's not hard for us to say, sure. But that's not very often the way we tell our story or the way we live out our faith. It takes courage, regardless of what we say, regardless of what we like to think about ourselves, to realize we are not the center of the universe. I think what I'm trying to say, we're not even the center of our own universe. And if that's true, if you believe that, that the story of God is bigger than us, that the story of God is about redeeming all of creation, not just you, if you fully, fully believe that, if you fully understand and embrace that as truth, here's what follows. You will never, ever be able to look at another human being the same way as before. If you were brought to your knees and worshiped by embracing that the God of the universe is redeeming all of creation and every person in it, we will never, ever be able to look at another human being the same way as before, regardless of who they are, what they look like, or what they say. You'll be able to more fully understand and love your neighbor as yourself. You'll likely be able to do it bigger, but that takes courage. Now, 
We have some kids worshiping with us these days, and I want to stop right here. And they have a new uh, sermon notes guide. It, it looks like this. Now, kids, uh, if you're in this room or in the FLC, there's that section there about words that you might want to write down and talk with your parents about later. I want to, I want to give you one to write down there, and it's the word grace. And here's how you spell it. It's a word that you know, I'm sure. It's a word that you have heard. It only has five letters in it, but it's a big word. Kids, I'm just going to encourage you that um, you, you might want to talk to your parents about that word after worship today. But there it is, grace, G-R-A-C-E. Finally, if we muster the courage to focus our attention on the God on the edges, the God beyond our personal experience, if we're able to readjust our tired eyes and make the God out there the object of our worship, if just for a little while, we may be able to finally, finally be still. To stop talking to stop yammering, and to listen. It's interesting to me that the word silent and the word listen are comprised of precisely the same letters. Some are better at this than others, but most of us are not that great at it. In fact, we can be pretty lousy at it, present company included. We follow a predictable pattern as humans with all of our flaws and imperfections. We have an encounter of God, with God, or a series of encounters with God along the way, and it changes us. We are transformed, and we want to talk about it. We want to share it. We want to testify. Yes, of course we do, and we should. So far, so good. And then along the way, as we grow in our faith, we develop what I'm going to call an ethic, a way of being in the world that's birthed and shaped and formed by our own going transformation, the experience of being transformed from the inside out. And our ethic, this thing that grows and builds in us, includes things like love and grace giving, forgiveness and compassion, servanthood and peacemaking. We have these guiding principles, these big guiding principles like stewardship and faithfulness and steadfastness and integrity and authenticity and honesty. Again, so far, so good, but then too often, just too often, something happens. Some shadow mission creeps in. Something creeps in. I, I don't know what causes it. Maybe a human need to prove our transformation to the world or, or maybe to ourselves. Maybe the human nature to continually have our transformation affirmed. Maybe the human nature to be seen and heard in a particular way by the world as if the world is the standard and their opinion matters all that much. Maybe it's a sense, a, a gnawing that we are not enough or that we're not okay, some lack of certainty or confidence, or maybe it's fear. I don't know, but we quit being still and listening. We stop listening to God and we stop listening to each other. We just start yammering. If we're not careful, we jump the shark. Pretty soon, we can find ourselves tightly, tightly defining our transformation as if it's complete. 
and we apply a big old dose of rigidity and oppression to it, the very thing, by the way, Jesus came to free us from, we tend to reduce our transformation birth ethic, love and grace giving, compassion and forgiveness, servanthood and peacemaking, to little more than an exclusive moral code or a set of stakes that we dig firmly into the ground. Moral codes are fine. You have one, I have one, and we should. But we, and we should pay careful attention to their formation while remembering that our moral codes, our stakes in the ground, are constructed by our own personal experiences and influences and interpretations of our lives as we have lived them. They are not, as such, universal. Remember, there's a God on the edges beyond your personal experience. A really, really big God. Faith is something way, way bigger, isn't it? The unfolding, redeeming story of God is bigger than our moral code, isn't it? If we're not careful, I mean super careful in our humanness, we find the expression of our faith. Our faith in this big, big God being little more than the staunch defense of our personal moral codes, the staunch defense of the statness of our apples, we then become the captor. We then become the oppressor. Regardless of the pious language we attempt to wrap around it, and when we go so far, when we go so far to so arrogantly even though we may be right, and even though we think we're right, when we go so far and are so arrogantly bold as to threaten those who don't see things as we do with God's displeasure, when we take it upon ourselves to be the dispensary of shaming and condemnation, righteous or otherwise, right or not, we do no service to God. We do no service to the kingdom of God. In fact, we become, well, bullies. God's displeasure with someone else or something else is not yours or not mine to assign. Kids, here's another word. If you have your if you have your guide with you, and it's the word condemn. This is how you spell it. Uh, maybe you want to talk with your moms and dads uh, after the service about what Jesus had to say about condemnation. You might want to start in the verse that follows the last one that we read today, where Jesus said, I'm coming to save the world, not to condemn it. Well, when we find ourselves there in this place, when we jump the shark, that far, at least two really bad things happen. Our hearts are hardened. Pretty soon we're walking around like we just ate a persimmon. It's hard to soften up something that's gotten hard. Perhaps worse, we become complicit in the fact that the seat in the pew next to you or around you is empty. 
or as it was put to us last week, maybe we're in the way, but in the way. Be still, the psalmist says, and know that I am God. Maybe, just maybe, when we have the courage to readjust our tired eyes and then look again, if we can muster the courage, we may have a keener sense that our story is not finished, that our transformation is not complete, and so is no one else's. Maybe our testimony will be more compelling and attractive, not to mention more truthful. Maybe we'll experience excellence in worship in a new way when we have a readjusted sense of the enormity of God. Maybe we'll have a deeper appreciation for theological depth and diversity because we know that we're all grappling. We're all grappling, each in our own way. And maybe with that understanding that we're all imperfect and grappling, we'll do even more authentic community building. Maybe when we realize that this big, big God also working on the edges and the lives of others beyond our personal reach and experience in ways that we can't imagine, maybe we'll reevaluate what it means to be a part of that work and what it means to be a Christian steward. And maybe we'll be compelled to deepen our missional consciousness a little bit more. Maybe, just maybe, with readjusted, less tired eyes, we'll be better at living out for all the world to see the good news of Jesus Christ. And we will grow his church. Here's the good news. You've got it in you. You've got the kind of courage that it takes to do what I'm talking about today. And hey, look, I, I, I know I may have upset some of your apple carts, I don't apologize for it, or maybe not. Maybe I haven't. Maybe it's just my own apple cart that's been upset. Okay. But you've got the courage in you. You've got the courage in you and the life of this church and the life of this congregation and in the lives in this church because it's been proven time and time and time again in the long history of this congregation. The good news is we have that kind of courage to do the hard things, to take the bigger Look, we have that kind of courage. Be courageous. Now, as our musicians come and get into place, I invite you to come down as our deacons for the morning get into place. If it's, if it's okay with you, Can this just be my prayer today?
I love you. I love you. Amen. And amen.